Hi everybody, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Today's subject, Dr. Alexis Carell, is considered by many to be one of the fathers of vascular surgery and transplantation. He won a Nobel Prize for his work in these areas, worked with the famous aviator Charles Lindbergh, and revolutionized wound management in World War I, saving untold lives and limbs. And yet, many people, including physicians, have never heard of him. Why would this be? We'll find out in this week's episode of Legends of Surgery. Alexis Carell was born June 28, 1873, so we're near his birthday, in Saint-Foy-le-Lyon, France. The eldest of three children, his father, a well-to-do textile manufacturer, died of pneumonia when he was just five years old, and his mother took up embroidering to support the family, which will come up later. He studied medicine in the Lyon School of Medicine, completing his degree in 1893 and then working as an intern for a year before spending a year in the army. He then spent the next five years as a surgical intern from 1895 to 1900. He got his Doctor of Medicine in 1900, writing his final thesis on thyroid cancer. A lot of sources say that his interest in vascular surgery came from a very famous event in French history. In 1894, then-French President Marie-Francois Sadie Carnot was attacked by an Italian anarchist and assassin named Sante Geronimo Cesario, who coincidentally was almost the exact same age as Carrel. This actually happened in Lyon, the town where Carrel was living, and one source claims he was in the audience when it happened, but I can't verify that. Anyways, Carnot was stabbed in the abdomen. Even though he made it to the hospital and the operating table, he bled to death because the knife cut his portal vein, which is a large blood vessel that drains into the liver. Surgical opinion at the time was that the president could not have been saved, as no one knew how to successfully repair blood vessels, only how to ligate or tie them off. Carell, despite being an intern at the time, disagreed and was inspired to work on vascular anastomosis, which is the sewing or suturing of two blood vessels together. In 1896, at Lyon's Hotel Dieu, and I told you in an earlier episode, there's a lot of hospitals named that, he met Mathieu Gebelet, a surgeon who had been developing a technique experimentally to repair a carotid artery, which is a large blood vessel in the neck. But Carell wanted to repair smaller blood vessels, and began to experiment on his own. Amazingly, he got the fine needle and thread he was after from a haberdasher, which is a great word. It means a seller of small articles for sewing, probably from the Anglo-Norman word hapertas, meaning small wares. And remember his mom's line of work? Well, Carell attributed his manual dexterity in working with these small vessels from lessons he learned from Madame Lewadier, one of the finest embroiderers in France. You have to imagine his mom helped him out with that connection. Carell spent the next five years experimenting on animals, which would eventually lead to a couple of important techniques for vascular anastomosis. The first, which is called the Carell stitch, involves the technique of triangulation, which is to say, to put three stay sutures, like anchoring threads, to hold the blood vessels in place at three points equally distant from each other, pulling it into a triangle shape, and then running a fine suture along the flat surface between each stay suture. I'll put up some pictures on Twitter and Facebook. The problems with closing small blood vessels was that they either would develop stenosis, meaning the opening of the blood vessel would narrow, which is bad, or a blood clot or thrombosis would form at the site, which is bad, or the vessel would leak, which is also bad. Carell outlined his principles in avoiding these complications in his Nobel speech, which we'll get to, and they are basically strict asepsis, meaning avoiding contamination, delicate handling of the blood vessels to avoid causing any injury to the lining of the vessels, including using fine needles and Vaseline-coated silk stitches, flushing away debris, and sewing the vessels under tension so they don't leak. He published his first articles on vascular anastomosis in 1902. This work was groundbreaking, which he did in his spare time from being a house officer and led him to some fame. So the next part of our story is a bit odd, 
and is a bit of a departure from the narrative, but seems to be of some importance as it's mentioned in a number of sources, so I'll tell it. In May of 1903, Carell was working as a surgical resident and was invited to join a pilgrimage to Lourdes, a small town in the Pyrenees in the southwest of France. This was and is an important site of Catholic pilgrimage, and Carell was raised a strict Catholic. Lourdes became famous because of Virgin Mary sightings by a young girl that lived there and became known for miraculous healing by drinking the waters from the spring. So on the train there, Carell attended a 17-year-old girl named Marie Bailey, who was near death from tuberculosis infecting her abdominal cavity, causing it to swell terribly. Her companions poured the healing water on her abdomen, and Carell found her later that evening with her belly flat and in no distress. He believed he had witnessed a miracle, and reported this, which made headlines in France, and Carell was caught between the clergy, which attacked him for being skeptical, and the medical community, which ridiculed him for being gullible. Some think this may have even led to him not passing his exams required to become a faculty member. Regardless, he failed these twice, and so left France. I will add quickly here, though, that he continued to make regular pilgrimages to Lourdes and actually met his future wife, Anne-Marie, there in 1910. She was a widowed nurse with one child, but she and Carell did not have children. So he wound up in Canada in 1904, first going to Quebec City, then Montreal, where he presented his paper on vascular anastomosis, which led to a job at the University of Chicago. Here he worked with Dr. Charles Guthrie for a couple of years, perfecting the Carell triangulation method, publishing articles at a rapid rate, and further developing vascular techniques including what is called the Corel patch, which is a bit technical, but it's important in kidney transplants, so I'll put up a picture. Now, the ability to sew small blood vessels together opened the door to transplantation of organs. This was never possible before, as there was no way for the transplanted organ to have a blood supply. Corel actually first transplanted a kidney from a dog's abdomen to its neck in 1902 in Lyon. That sounds strange, but it first demonstrated the principles that make organ transplantation possible. The dog did die from infection a few days later, but the kidney produced urine immediately. Carell and Guthrie published this and other experiments involving transplanted thyroid glands, ovaries, and even a heart. They also showed that veins could be used as a substitute for arteries and take on the properties of an artery when transplanted, a finding that would have a big impact on things like coronary artery bypass. After giving a lecture in Baltimore at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, at the invitation of Dr. Harvey Cushing, who we met in Podcast 7, he got an invitation to move to New York to work at the better-funded Experimental Surgical Department at the Rockefeller Institute continuing his work on blood vessels and transplants, as well as skin grafting, cold preservation of tissues, wound healing, and tissue cultures. He was there from 1906 until his retirement in 1939. Funny story about his lab there. His operating room was on the top floor and lit by sunlight, creating significant glare. To reduce this, Carell had the room painted black and had his staff wear black robes and caps. Imagine. While at the Rockefeller Center, Carell continued his groundbreaking work, showing that blood vessels could be kept in cold saline solution for days to weeks and then implanted, proving that they could be preserved with hypothermia. He even reported successful limb transplantation, taking the thigh from one dog and transplanting it on another. In 1910, he had moved to research on surgical procedures of the heart, operating on valves, and doing the world's first coronary artery bypass graft, which is known by the familiar acronym CABBAGE, in a dog. Now one anecdote I came across where these principles were put to use was the following. In 1908, the newborn baby named Mary Lambert, daughter of a prominent professor of surgery at Columbia University, developed Melina Neonatorum, which basically means bleeding in the GI tract. The father convinced Carell to carry out a procedure where he sewed the dad's radial artery, which is from the forearm, to the baby's popliteal vein in the back of the knee, transfusing enough blood to allow the baby to live, which apparently she did, and survived to the age of 34, dying of a stroke. Carell received the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1912, quote, 
in recognition of his work on vascular suture and transplantation of blood vessels and organs, end quote. He was the first scientist working on U.S. soil to win, and also the youngest, age 39. However, he was not the first surgeon to win, but that is a story for another day. Look for a Nobel Prize podcast in October, which is when they're handed out. One odd side note about his win. One source claims that Carell used the prize money to buy the island of St. Gildas in the English Channel off the Brittany coast of France. So his next area of study was on tissue culture, meaning to grow cell types in isolation. His goal was to eventually be able to grow whole organs for transplantation. One story is that in January 12, 1912, he took some chick embryo heart and put it in a culture which survived until April 1946, 34 years after it started. Every year, newspapers would run a happy birthday column, and the lab would sing happy birthday to the culture. The same technician, who actually eventually became a doctor, cared for the culture the entire time. Krell also studied cancer cells in tissue culture, making important observations that contributed to our understanding of cancer, and developed a special culture flask called the Krell flask, which helped to avoid contamination. With the outbreak of World War I, Krell was called to service in the military as a major in the French army. War in the farmlands of France led to a lot of contaminated wounds and gas gangrene, causing significant illness and death from even minor wounds, which he saw in his first post doing triage at a train station. He begged for a hospital and lab to work on wound infections, eventually working in a hospital on the front lines at Compain with English chemist Henry Dakin, thanks to support from his American friends. They developed a technique for wound management, including the use of a sodium hypochlorite solution. Remember, this is before antibiotics which became known as Dakin solution, or corel dakin fluid. This was better than the other antiseptics around, such as carbolic acid, which you may remember from the Lister podcast, as it doesn't damage living tissue, and it's still around today. Now, the principles of their method was to remove foreign bodies and dead tissue in deep, open war wounds, called surgical debridement, followed by copious irrigation with sodium hypochlorite solution, the Dakin solution, which helped to clear away the dead tissue and bacteria. He also performed daily cultures of the wounds to look for bacteria, and only when there were hardly any detectable would he allow the wounds to be surgically closed. A side note, while Carell worked at the frontline hospital, his wife drove an ambulance. Carell actually received a number of awards from allied countries, but not France, in thanks for this innovation. Following the war, he returned to New York, where his work focused on whole organ perfusion, basically like an artificial heart, because of a meeting with Charles Lindbergh. Now let me take just a minute to introduce him for those that don't know who he is. Charles Lindbergh's initial rise to fame was in 1927 when he set the record for the longest solo non-stop flight in his plane, the Spirit of St. Louis, flying 33 and a half hours from New York to Paris. I'm glad it doesn't take that long now. In 1932, his infant son was kidnapped and murdered. You may have heard of the Lindbergh baby, which was called the crime of the century. So it was in 1930 that Lindbergh first contacted Carell. His sister-in-law had suffered from rheumatic heart disease, which left her with a damaged heart valve. Surgeons at the time could not operate on this, so Lindbergh wanted to invent a heart-lung machine, which would effectively replace the job of the heart during the surgery. They got pretty far, too, creating the Corel Lindbergh perfusion pump in 1935 that sustained a cat thyroid gland for 18 days on a nutrient-rich fluid. Other organs, too, were kept alive for days at a time, including heart, kidney, fallopian tube, pancreas, and spleen. This laid the groundwork for future heart-lung devices and organ preservation for transplantation. I'll post a picture of the pump. The pump and the strange partners were so fascinating to the public that they made the cover of Time magazine and the Lindbergh apparatus was on display at the New York World's Fair in 1939. So it was also in 1935 that Krell published what would become a very popular but controversial book, 
and would lead to the downfall of his reputation. This book, entitled Man the Unknown, which at the time was second in sales only to Gone with the Wind and published in 19 languages, put forward the idea that science was not doing enough for mankind and that civilization was destroying itself with its own decadency. He thought that mankind could achieve perfection through selective reproduction, stating, quote, Eugenics is indispensable for the perpetuation of the strong. A great race must propagate its best elements, end quote. Even more disturbing was his, quote, humane and economical solution, end quote, for the weaker members of society. He suggested that they be, quote, disposed of in small euthanasic institutes, supplied with proper gases. A similar treatment could be advantageously applied to the insane guilty of criminal acts, end quote. Yikes. Sound familiar? The book regained notoriety in the 1990s when a far-right political party in France started to recycle some of his ideas, so much so that his name was removed from streets in more than 20 French cities, and the Alexis Carrel Medical Faculty in Lyon was renamed in 1996. His ideology, understandably, was met with criticism, and may have forced him to retire from the Rockefeller Institute in 1939 at the age of 65 because of this. He returned to France on the eve of World War II and re-enlisted. However, with the downfall of France, he returned to the U.S., helping the Americans with plans for a mobile hospital and working on blood preservation techniques, and convincing the U.S. government to provide him with vast quantities of vitamins to take to the French people who were suffering from malnutrition. Unable to get to France, he arranged for their distribution in Spain instead. This mission returned him to Europe, where he became director of the Foundation for the Study of Human Problems, set up by the Vichy government, which is the puppet government of the occupying German forces. So let me describe this foundation. Its purpose was to study the problems of mankind, such as childhood diseases, starvation, predicting illness, prevention of fatigue, and early aging, but also the supernatural, hypnosis, telepathy, and ESP. Their scope was ambitious, with the plan to study for a hundred years and then make recommendations for the betterment of mankind. In August 1943, Carell had a heart attack, and a second one in 1944 killed him at the age of 71. Had he survived the war, Many feel he would have gone on trial, as he had been relieved of his duties after the liberation of France and attacked publicly as a Nazi sympathizer and collaborator due to his writings and involvement with the Vichy government. It's sad that such an accomplished and driven scientist and surgeon could hold such repulsive ideals. It's understandable why people don't want to include him in the history of surgery, but there's no denying that he leaves a legacy of good as well in his works, which have influenced some of the greatest triumphs of surgery in the 20th century. Not only did his vascular surgical techniques open the door for an entire specialty, but his efforts to keep tissues and organs alive outside the body paved the way for the field of transplantation. Well, that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm going to move to my summer schedule now, which will be to release a podcast every two weeks, returning to my semi-regular weekly podcast in September. So that puts us to July 1st, which is Canada Day. In honor of my home and native land, I'll cover one of the most famous of Canadian surgeons, Dr. Norman Bethune. I promise this one will be of interest to everyone, as he led a strange, exciting, and controversial life, and had impacts on people around the world. Tune in then to learn more. But for now, please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes, and as always, thanks for listening.